Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change. All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm excited today to be joined by Sarah Harden. Sarah's the CEO of Hello Sunshine. If you don't know who Hello Sunshine is, then stop this video immediately. Uh, go and check them out. Find them on Instagram or wherever you find them. They're absolutely amazing. And Sarah, together with the founder, Reese Witherspoon, um, is, this is a media brand that's anchored in storytelling and they're on a mission to change the narrative for women. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Prior to Hello Sunshine, Sarah was the president of Otter Media, which is a joint venture between AT&T and the Chernin Group. Uh, she was based in Hong Kong as the group director of News Corp Asia. Uh, she was senior vice president of business development at Fox Network. She started a career at Boston Consulting Group. She graduated from Harvard Business School as a Baker Scholar. I really need to ask what that means, Sarah. And she's also got three gorgeous kids and a large extended family. So look, Sarah, my first question before we kick off is, you don't appear to have packed much into your life yet. I'm just wondering <laughs> when you're going to put the foot down and really take off. <laughs> Thanks for that, Melissa. You forgot the most important part. I'm a Geelong girl. A girl oh, she's a Geelong girl. girl. Geelong. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Sarah, before um, we jump into too much, for people who haven't had the chance to come across you before, would yeah. you share with the audience a little bit about who you are and, and what drives you and, and your passions? Well, it's interesting because I think the work that I'm doing really reflects my passions, which is one of the, I have to say, one of the greatest joys about my job. And it, it's interesting, it sort of reflects a set of intentional choices over the last 20 years, although I'm always really surprised to be like, oh, wow, I've, I've ended up here. And, you know, I think growing up, um, as I did, I, I grew up in Geelong and um, I was always curious about media and entertainment. Um, at first I thought of, I wanted to be a journalist. I was a huge reader. Like I, I really remember those days of like asking my mum to take me to the Geelong library and getting out like 20 books at a time and many car trips. Um, like, yeah, I could read in the car, which was great. I would just I like read and still, read. And that's, yeah, I'm a big reader. You still reader. read an enormous amount, don't you? Well, it's one of the best parts about my job. My books sit at the center of our company. So, and, but you know, I, I was, and I was always, um, I always had this aspiration to work internationally, but I, I didn't know what that was about. And I, I really thought I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And so I think to be here, um, you know, I left Australia in 1997 mm. for business school and, and I was, really excited to like broaden um, my business knowledge. I felt like I had done a, you know, Bachelor of Arts in East European Politics at, at Melbourne Uni, out of school. And I sort of worked in consulting. I was like a random hire at, at Boston Consulting Group out of, um, you know, out of undergrad. And so coming, I, I came here for a couple of years and I was really excited about it. And then I, I do remember very, I was very focused when I was at school. I was so curious about the intersection of entertainment and technology it was sort of the boom of the dot-com era and and then I decided I wanted to work in that intersection it was close to consumers and you know reflected I, you know, I grew up like so many people I loved tv and movies and books and but I didn't really think there was a role what did it look like back then I mean that's a while ago yeah. now and it's sort of it's it's fantastic to have almost had that vision of you know, where it's gone. It's become such an enormous thing. But what did it look like back then? Well, I mean, first, other than Skippy, it was like a lot of American TV shows. So I fell in love with America then. Um, do you know what? It was like my first, I, I really do remember, um, I was pretty focused. I loved Yana Venn. Like I really, she was a bit of an idol. I, I wrote a, I wrote her a letter when I was like 13, 14. And, and she was, um, 
you know, and I, I saw this, so 60 Minutes, like, was really influential. Hey, Hat Saturday on a Saturday night. Like, these are the shows that I love. But I didn't, I don't, honestly didn't see it as a, poss- I didn't see it as a career possibility. I really, I really didn't. Um, uh, journalism, I did. And I was a good writer because I, I read a lot. And so I thought, well, maybe there's something, maybe there's something there. And, but I was curious about business. I had a, I had two parents who were very entrepreneurial in their own way and, my mum had been an intensive care nurse at Geelong Hospital and my parents divorced when I was reasonably young. And I, I think partly my mum had to go back to work and she went and worked with one of her, one of seven children um, with one of her brothers and built a commercial real estate practice. And I, I watched her do that in my teenage years. And then my, mm. my dad was a property developer and um, built properties in regional Victoria office buildings. And so he was an entrepreneurial person. And so I was, there was a lot of sort of discussion about business around our tables. And my mom was also very transparent about like money and she shared her family about our budget with my two brothers and I, and when we would be like, why can't we go on vacation? Like, you know, she was, she was really like, and so there was this like curiosity about about business that um you know our family friends had a had a store that I used to work in you know from when I was like 15 16 on and my summers we we always worked on our summer holidays I think um, my mum was working and um and so I I was really curious about that but I didn't see but but I do look back and say gosh a lot of that I a lot of that sort of came together when I went to business school I mean it was a little terrifying I mean I remember turning up to Boston with sort of two suitcases and total imposter syndrome. Did you know anyone? I, I knew of an, one of the other Australians in my class. Mm-hmm. We had a mutual friend, but I no, I didn't know anyone. And I do remember that and feeling that like, you know, I'd done pretty well in school, but I was like, mm, is my, you know, am I real? is my education going to really match up on a, when I'm meeting, you know, my class of 800 people from I don't know, 50 countries or whatever, you know, am I sort of like, I did okay for going to school in Australia, <laughs> working in Australia, but not going to match up on a world stage. And so it was just an, that was an incredible experience. I think the speakers on campus, the exposure, the people, the diversity of experiences. I mean, it was, it was, it was life-changing, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think from then, I mean, I really have since then been, I did a startup out of business school. I, I didn't move back to Australia. I didn't go back to my consulting firm. I was so, I thought if I don't, may as well stay here and work for a couple of years and I, I could do it under my visa. And I've never lived back in Australia. Not, I mean, I have a house outside Geelong where I, you know, I, it's an important home base for me, but I've been living and working here, um, you know, for the last 23 years, I guess now. Wow, that's a lot. Wow. Um, and, um and, you know, it's taken me, I, I've lived in Hong Kong as part of that. So, so that really is like, but, but, but all of those I've been since then, since graduating from business school, doing that startup, you know, I have been working in different roles at, at the intersection of, of entertainment and, and, and technology and, um, and consumers. So straight off the bat, you know, people, I know people are going to be watching this, Sarah, and they're going to think I could, I could never do what Sarah d- does. Um, you know, I could never, I could never be like Sarah, um, you know, take the risks or put myself out there like that or any of those sorts of things. So how would you respond to that kind of thought that probably people watching this right now are having? You know, it's interesting. I, I will, I'll take a slight diversion and I will answer your question. I, I remember, you know, five, seven years ago running Otter, we, we had a company full screen and I remember, um, the CEO, George, said, look, we've actually, we, and we bought another company and it was probably three or 400 people. And um, he said, you know what, this company that we bought, we have, it was a young workforce. Um, and he said, we've got all these women who are like either pregnant or first child. And there's like a cohort of them and they want to see if you'll have lunch with them. And this, I had, I think I, I, I had my third child was probably four or something. Like that. And my children, and you know, I had three children. And I was like, of course I will. And I remember, I was like, what do they want to talk to me about? Like literally. And so we had this lunch and it started a series of these lunches. And one of them asked me a question that was around this, which is a version of like, how do you, how do you do it all? Like, how do you have this high power job and, and, 
be focused on your work and you've got three kids and you've got a husband and friends and you're involved in the community and like how do you not judge yourself and I'm like look and it's sort of a version of how I'd answer this question and I remember in that lunch giving this answer and it's something I've really gone back to which was I think we when, when you look at something, it's very tempting to zone in on where someone is right at that moment in time. You zone in on motherhood on a certain day and think, am I, I'm a terrible mother because you're being a great employee that day. Yeah. You've got a meeting that runs late. You don't put your kids to bed. You look out on the course of a week and you're like, I was a pretty good mom yeah. and I was a pretty good employee and I wasn't a bad wife. Or maybe you've actually had a really busy work at week at work and you've said, I, was a, I knocked it out of the park of my job, but I, I, like, I need to like, spend some more time with our kids. You look out in the course of a month and you're like, gosh, I'm, I'm doing a pretty great job. And look out of the course of a year. And, you know, I think so much we judge ourselves actually on a given day. Mm. And, and then we look at careers like mine and you look, oh, wow. And you just got to widen your aperture. We have to widen our aperture in the way we look at things. You know, I, I look at, I look at where I am and I'm like, I'm, I'll turn 50 next year. I live in LA. Like I never thought I would be in LA. Mm. My business partner and woman I respect so much and so deeply is Reese Witherspoon. I grew up watching her. Right. And we all, um, and I've got this company that I feel so blessed to lead, these incredible colleagues. It's a very collaborative leadership team. I'm like, how the hell did I get here? Yeah. But it has been a series of steps. But if you widen your aperture over 24 years, and so the temptation is to look at one thing and say, I could never do that. Yes, you could. Mm -hmm. If you've taken that series of steps in the way that I had or some similar series of steps. And you know, and I think when we when we look at that and we judge ourselves and we judge others is taking a real step back and looking at all of it. And it's not just our work lives. It is our home lives. It is our, um, you know, are, are we good uh, friends? Are we good community members? Are we being a good mother and parents? And I being a good partner to my husband? Like um, all of those are deeply important to me. And um, and, and I really try and remember that. And I actually try and remember when I'm judging myself about any of those things. I'm, you know, some days I'm a good employee or some days I'm a good employer and CEO. Yeah. Some days I'm a great mom. And just some days you cannot be, you, you, you cannot be good at all the four or five aspects of your life. You can't nail it every day. You just can't. And we've got to cut of, I know that wasn't entirely your question, but yeah. But it is about that. It's like we've got to widen our aperture when we look at others. And, you know, you hear so many stories of overnight successes who are overnight successes when they're 55. Like, yeah. you know, we have to take a step back, I think. And I, I, I sort of also, like, I get really annoyed about the sort of the myth of the, you know, whether the myth of the overnight success. Um, and it, it doesn't... Um, it doesn't respect often the decades of quiet work that yeah. goes into anything you want to do. It's been really, raising kids yeah. is the biggest of them. I love the advice in terms of the just take the take the pressure off yourself to be able to be everything every single day or every single yeah. moment. I think that's such yeah. a great way of looking at it. Yes, this whole notion yeah. of having it all. I'm yeah. like, nah. yeah. no. I'm no. um I'm puzzled by um, the fact that we've still got such a gender gap. I know diversity is really broad and, you know, there are so many areas that, that we, we do need to and we should focus on. Um, I am focusing on gender in these conversations and a theme that keeps coming up is around things like gender gap. You know, some of the early answers were things like, well, girls pull out of science and maths too early. And those are the careers that often lead to the higher paying roles and those sorts of things. So, you know, I've asked some questions around that. But the thing that keeps bouncing back to me is that it's less about that and more about the fact that women don't ask. So, you know, guys are 40% more likely to ask for raises. And when women do, um, the research is saying they ask for 30% less. I just kind of want to dig in to what might sit behind that or any of your thoughts around any of yeah. that. I, I like I, I the narrative around this strikes me. It's another version of victim blaming, right? I, I've, I've some 
I will, I am Australian, but I will try not to swear. Um, Feel free. I, I, look, I think the issues are so systemically rooted. And so we have to interrogate all of the systems around how, how we are, where we are. And there are ultimate systems around power and who has power, who gets power. And we've got rooted that are, we've got systems that are rooted in structural patriarchy, basically. And so there is there are certainly when you look at the habits of women around pay equity, for example, some of those are happened because you've had decades of being conditioned, of being asked and said no, or of being asked, of asking and being fired. Yeah. Or of asking and not getting the job. It is unsafe unsafe for many women to ask for what they deserve and should get and for ask for equal trip it is being unsafe mm. and so when we look at this when we look at any of these topics and, and one of the reasons the data is so hard to change and look i'm so hopeful because of you know i've been very involved in the times up movement here and i and having lived and worked uh, for 20 years, like I, the, there's more hope in the last five years than I have seen because I think our eyes are being peeled back and we really are challenging yeah. systemic structures around how we, and in the workplace, how we recruit, retain, um, uh, deal with uh, not just systemic issues, but then just the sets of unconscious biases that we all come to the, to the workplace for of like, you know, why is she asking for it? She should be grateful she has a job. She's she's gonna she's probably gonna get pregnant in the next couple of years and then leave. Yeah. So it's a good she's lucky she was she's lucky we hired her. I mean, seriously, we've all lived through this in a workplace. And so I, I really have a problem when we have been operating these systems and it's like if only women would do better, if only women would be more vocal, if only people of color would be more vocal. Um, if only this and, and that would happen, then it would solve everything. I just call bullshit on the whole lot of it. <laughs> and so it is, it is part of the conversation for women to understand the conditioning of the decades of this and how we, how we um, advocate for ourselves in ways that are going to be more successful and effective. But we're advocating for ourselves in a system which is, has, which those strategies have not been effective. And so it's, it's equally as important that we train uh, men and women in positions of power to sort of recognize the structural dynamics and issues in that. Look, I, I, it's, it's really interesting in California, having gone through, you know, 12 months ago, I've been focused on pay equity really visibly for the last 10 years. And I was very conscious of it, making sure in California, probably 18 months ago, it became illegal for you to ask a woman, or to ask a woman, to ask anyone what their prior salary was. So, oh, wow. and the reason of that is because women have been structurally underpaid. It's a terrible benchmark because then you go, you have a salary negotiation with someone. So you ask now, it took a little conditioning because you'd say, where are you at now and where do you want to be? Yeah. Right? So it perpetuates pay inequity. It's actually been really interesting to see and, and I've had to shift instead of you you you, you it's illegal to ask we do not ask mm. what we say is like what's your target salary what's your experience set you talk us through that and um and just a, a simple issue like that that's a that's a that's a legal reform I think that law in California is going to do more I mean it's certainly I think a big step in advancing pay equity for people who have been systemically underpaid. And all of these stats are terrible for women. They're, they're, they're not good for women. They are even more terrible for other marginalized groups, particularly people of color. Sarah, um, you shared a story with me that, um, you know, I think some people might find really interesting. Um, and it was to do with a point in time um, we talk about sometimes women self-reject. So they don't put themselves forward for an opportunity because they kind of talk themselves out of it beforehand. And you shared a story with me about a time that you sort of sat back and waited potentially around an opportunity. Can you, can you recall that firstly, what I was, what I was talking yeah. about? And yeah. what kind of went on in that space for you at that point? Look, it's happened to me a couple of times when 
I'll do some different points in my career and, and, and in the last 10 years where it's happened twice, where I have been, when I've seen on the horizon that something, there's a, a senior role was coming up and I thought, well, I could be a candidate for that. Working with people who know me well have been good advocates in my career and being in that position of saying, if they thought I was right for that, they would come to me. Mm-hmm. Like, they actually know me. They're good heart. Like, I know they have my interests at heart, actually. Yeah. Um, and they would tap me on the shoulder if they thought I was right for this. And I'm in a pretty good place right now. And on one of these roles, it got filled by someone. It turned out to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to my boss at the time, like, why, like, like the feeling really hurt and basically saying, I don't, I don't understand why you didn't come to me. And this boss being confounded, saying, what are you talking about? You were so aware we were doing this. Why the hell didn't you put up your hand? Yeah. Right. And and it, it was a, it was a bit of a left of a it would have been a bit of a left of a center move for me. And their assumption was, she's just not interested. She's doing great where she is, and so, and it was. I mean, it, it was a it was a great example for me of, of being, oh my god, I have to, you you have to have, and it, all the conditions in this were actually pretty good. It wasn't like I was being overlooked or marginalized by someone. It was actually someone who genuinely is got my interest at heart and has been an incredible advocate for me in other situations and you know um but it was a good lesson to me which was um I that 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 I think that was some gender playing a role certainly if you look at the data if I had um there is more of a willingness um for men to put themselves put to put themselves up but of having more agency um in the way I advocate for myself in my career. And with the full knowledge, you know, I am not a, um, you know, I know who I am. Yeah. And, uh, but, but that was a really good lesson for me. And I, I, and that, I, you that know, I really regret it. I really regret um, yeah. the way I handle that. Well, that incredible leader who was a strong advocate of yours just wasn't a mind reader, right? Well, I knew, look, I obviously had that. I said, you know, you should have come to me. That wasn't just my responsibility to throw my hand up. But at the end of the day, well, you know, we're in, we're working systems, even well-intentioned people, um, you know, you, you have to, you have to take, that's where you sort of have to take the responsibility of self-advocacy and agency, um, I think, in, in a workplace. So um, tell me about Hello Sunshine and tell me about, you know, I know you're building a really intentional culture and, you know, there's a lot of deliberate things you're doing in the way that the company's being built. But but talk to me about that and talk to me, you know, as you said, your dream of can't believe you're working with Reese and you're in LA and you're doing what you're doing. Um, how did that all come about, Sarah? Yeah, well, I do think like the work I'm doing now is a, it's, it's interesting to look back and say it sort of is a culmination. And, and I think when I first sat with Reese, which was probably nearly five years ago, and she had, it was, you know, Hello Sunshine was a pretty fully formed idea for her. And she was, um, but, you know, no employees. She, you know, Reese had a very successful career as a producer and obviously a decades long career as an actress. And frustrated by the lack of opportunities as an actress to play like complex female protagonists and the experience of going to Hollywood studios and them saying, oh, we've got our one movie with a woman at the center, like, um, and also a lover of books. And so she'd come off Gone Girl and Wild and books she had optioned herself and mm. produced as TV shows. And so, and I had been building sort of next generation media brands. Um, and so when when I first met, I it was, and we were clear we were going to do this together. It, it really was that feeling, wow, I've sort of been preparing my whole life for this, just in terms of the skills and um, and and also something I could not do without without Reese. Um, and um, and so, you know, Hello Sunshine, we're a, we're a media brand and a media company with a 
a mission-driven company focused on changing the narrative for women. And, you know, we're, um, we're driven by the belief that, um, that storytelling can shift culture and culture can shift the way we get to walk through the world. And so, you know, we've got a premium content side of our business. So we're in the scripted shows like um, Big Little Lies and um, Morning Show or Morning Wars in Australian. Um, <laughs> little fires everywhere. Um, we have, uh, we're in production this year on From Scratch, of, um, another book by Tembi Locke for Netflix, um, Daisy Jones and the Sixth in the back half of the year. We've got I love production. Yeah, really wonderful. Taylor Jenkins read. I mean, she's an amazing author. In fact, her seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo is one of my favorite books and is got a huge resurgence right now. This, I, all my friends are, re are reading it. Um, and books sit at the center of what we do as well. So we're not, we, we are a studio and production company and our content sides of the business. We have an unscripted division, so reality TV, and we have a kids and animated division, you know, focusing on sort of changing the narrative for girls. And then we have a direct-to-consumer content and commerce part of our company. And, and I think how we're building the company, I think, reflects when we start out four and a half years ago was how do we build a media company that's architected for the next 20 years of media, not, not the last 20, and a, a belief that we thought it was important to be in conversation with audiences and then to bring those audiences to whatever we're, else we're doing. So Reese's Book Club was the starting point of that, and it was just a curatorial voice for our brand. Reese picks a book in the first week of every month, and we promote it on Instagram. And, you know, I think we have become the most influential social book club or the most influential book club in, in media. We launched a um, direct consumer app last week, which was actually a big deal for us and with a couple of million members. And, um, you know, Reese, you know, she uh, looks to really elevate authors, often debut authors, although not always. And all, all of our books have a, a woman driving the story. And, you know, we, we then adapt some of those for film and television and, um, and uh, you know, and then we have a brand partnerships team and a, a social and editorial team. So, you know, I think when you put all that together, I think building a brand that gives us the ability to bring, like, to we sort of say earn our way into the attention of women across the world with um, with premium stories, whether that's told in a podcast form, we've also produced podcasts, or in a feature film in a theater or in a television series on a streaming platform or directly on, you know, our YouTube channel. Um, we're telling storytelling. So there's a really stories. strong why behind the company then, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Passion. Absolutely. And I, and, I, and I think it reflected what we thought was a white space. Look, this is such a crowded media landscape. At some level, you look back five years ago and say, we were idiots starting an entertainment media company. But we saw this white space together and the white space is if you have decades of the way stories are built where you have voices the voices of women and people of color and lgbtqia people left out structurally marginalized from storytelling whether you look at the percentage of directors whether you look at green light committees whether you look at then but yet the makeup of those people absolutely reflect the audiences. Mm -hmm. You have gaps in people not seeing their experiences reflected on screen. That's a gap. So, and it sounds crazy, but I, I'd never forget talking to Reese. you know, with Big Little Lies, the story about five women and their friendship and the complexities of female friendship. You know, Reese is like, this is the first time I've been on a call sheet with like four other actresses. I'm like, what are you talking about? You've been making movies for 20 years. She went back through all of them. Nope, nope, nope. Single female lead with a, that's crazy to me. Crazy, yeah. Crazy. And then you look at Big Little Lies as a huge hit and you're like, you wonder why. And you think, oh my God, women. And by the way, it's a little bit crazy because Big Little Lies actually shot the school in Big Little Lies. It's my kid's elementary school, which is like a mile from my house. So not only does it feel like real life, I'm like, it really does. Feel like real life. It does, really does feel like real, real life um, uh, because it's literally right down my, down my street. But, but you see women ref, the, reflecting the, 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 the school mum experience. There's something in that that they can take away from it or whether it's little flies everywhere and 
experiences reflect the complexities of, of motherhood and race and identity and who gets to become a mother and like those themes that it explores, it's just a giant white space. So that's what we saw. We saw a business opportunity, which is like when you leave people out. And so I think the job is not only we talk about, it's not just what we do in making storytelling, but it's how we do it. And so, you know, building a company, which um, the diverse makeup of our company, a set of culture and values, we are also driven by the fact that in a crowded marketplace, if your content is going to resonate with audiences, if they're going to see something of themselves reflected in it, you, you must make that storytelling authentically. And mm -hmm. so when you look at the, the makeup of a writer's room for us, or if you think of the, the, the books or the stories we choose to tell, if you, who's in our employee base, who's in our boardroom, um, we talk about building an authentically stacked company um, based on, you know, based on our mission and what we're putting out into the world. And again, we just, we saw a gap. Um, you know, I think then a year or two after we started the company, you had the, the, the Me Too and Time's Up movements, um, which I think has certainly didn't change our mission, but it certainly accelerated it and I think has brought a high level of consciousness. And then, and then obviously with Black Lives Matter as well about the, mm. um, you know, the systemic racism and systemic exclusion that you've had from groups from all aspects of our lives and including our entertainment media companies. How have you shaped, because you talk a lot about the culture being an intentional culture, what does that mean? And, and when you say it, are you rejecting other cultures you've seen or, you know, what, what's that about? Well, look, I think, I mean, I, I certainly remember in the first few months of Hello Sunshine, I think the experience I'd had prior to that at Otto where we helped foster and build and grow multiple and, and under order four companies that were early stage companies. The experience is, look, you're, you're setting culture in a company from day one in everything you do. You're sending signals of who belongs here and what we're about and what behaviors are acceptable and what's expected and what's tolerated. And you can either do that accidentally or you can do it intentionally. And we're in a really competitive marketplace to hire world-class talent. And if you're an early stage company, you're not going and paying the biggest salaries. And you have to convince incredible people to come on a ride with you. In some cases to move away from more financially secure roles. And so I think you've got to be very clear about what you stand for. I, I also think for us, we put a woman, our, our mission is to put a woman at the center of every narrative we champion and embedded in that is elevating diverse and authentic voices. And so it's like embedded in our mission. So look, I think what it looked like was as you get building and you start to have, and it's, and it's, it's humbling. Mm. It's humbling hiring and managing people. Like it is so hard. And so, you know, I think early on, it's like, oh, you know, we've got a company that empowers women. I remember early having to really, I think with young early stage employees might've been their first or second jobs. It means it doesn't mean you get to do whatever you yeah. want to do. If you have a good idea to make a podcast, it doesn't mean we're going to do it. Like mm. we've got to be selective and thoughtful, like a lot of those things. So, but what I meant, what it looked like early on, so we really defined our values early on with, with our team, very specific around, um, you know, we ha we have five values. We wrote them in the form of actually a, a, a children's picture book. Um, I've got I'm just got my values book somewhere right here, actually, in my, I'm at my desk at home. Um, so, you know, our mission drives us in everything we do. We're world-class DIYers. Um, we're humans who show up. We are an excellence machine. Um, and so, so we talked about what those meant to us, mm. the tension between them. We talk about our values. They're embedded in everything we do. We look at, at everything through that. Um, we have been doing since we're 10 people, we I brought in an external leadership and culture development person to work with us who works and, and she spends two days a month with the company. And that was a real investment early on. And it's everything from helping our mid-level leaders develop leadership capacity because many of them are first time leaders and our company is fast growing. So um, it is teamwork it's putting in place practices for how we work together um, so we have different practices in our company we have check-ins at the start of meetings it's but it's also a language around around how we talk and 
So I think it's about being, I think for us very clear about who we are and, and about how that relates to our source of advantage as a, you know, as a company. Like DIYer is one, it, you know, we sort of talk about like we can pitch $100 million TV shows and we or we also unstack the dishwasher. I, it's a very, it's kind of a very Australian egalitarian, but, you know, it's like when it's no big egos, no asshole. No it's a version of that, right? It's like, yeah. like where we all, but also you've got to preserve a startup's resources. We're not going to waste money on yeah. stupid things. We fly coach. Like, you know, they're important signaling. They're important signaling things um, yeah. around. And that know, includes you through Sarah, I assume. So when you say. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, there are definitely times when, you know, when we're like, really? <laughs> we all got a red eye. You're like, hmm. we made this. But that's how, but that's how, but that's how, but that was important. And it's actually, it's not. It's important as a, and look, as we get bigger and we, we might change some of those and say it's not as important for us anymore. And actually, um, and so, but I think, and then your employees are always looking about, are you internally consistent? So it's not about just pasting them on a wall, but we, and then we hold ourselves accountable to those. We, whether it's engagement, we do engagement surveys around how we're living up to them. We have open forums and discussions. And look, there is always work to be done. We can always do better and be better. Um, can I ask, how do, you, um, how do you um, protect against the situation you spoke about earlier where, you know, as your company grows, you're growing quickly, you've obviously got a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of opportunities for people to put their hands up and take on new roles. How do you kind of protect against those situations where, you know, there could be people sitting in the organisation who are self-rejecting before they even get there? You know, I think all of the, uh, I think one of the things we're looking to do is, and it, it gets back to sort of values and culture, is create, you know, it's funny, I, I literally have, we've been having a conversation as executive about diversity and inclusion this morning. And so I actually have this, I've had this definition next to my desk for about a year, but it's, it's the, you know, we talk about what does it mean to be a truly inclusive company? And, you know, inclusion is about safety in a lot of areas, but, you know, this definition by Valerie Williams, who's an amazing um, uh, diversity inclusion consultant who's been working with the company, the intentional creation of conditions where everyone is valued and belongs so we can leverage the power of differences. That's her inclusion definition. I love it. Mm. And you talk about a condition where everyone is valued and belongs. That's a condition of psychological safety. I think when you look at everything about all of this research about the effectiveness of teams and the effectiveness of high performance cultures, so much of it comes down to creating psychological safety. So what does that mean? Expectations are clear. Yeah. It's transparent about how and who you get promoted, mm -hmm. um, how you advance in an organization, you have um, a culture of a clear culture of feedback and performance assessment. You have the ability to safely raise issues when they arise. And, and safety is a really big one for employees. We are constantly interrogating that. Yeah. And, you know, we're 60, 70 people. We have pockets of the company where like, I, we have an issue here. Like, what are we doing about it? How do we tackle it? We, um, and so, and also you've also, we as team and managers are all working to become better leaders too. So how do you have a, have a, um, a culture that supports a growth mindset that has a lot of expectations about what's expected as leaders, but also gives them this, it's like accountability for that, but then the support and scaffolding to actually become better leaders. None of us are perfect or fully formed. We are all works in process. And I think that's the hard work of leadership is judging. It's the hard work of terminating people who are not exhibiting issues consistent with your culture, which is, you know, what's behavior that gives rise to a termination and what is someone who needs more coaching and support and when and where do you draw those lines yeah um you have a um uh, i just looked earlier at your instagram and on there you've got um i think it's do more be better and you've got one that i really loved which was learn and unlearn yeah yeah what's well, that as a kind of anchor or a statement i mean look i sort of it's funny the whole like do more be better and it's kind of 
more more action less talk is a bit of the ethos of hello sunshine like you know i think when we started the company we had to put our heads down and you know we've got a such a worthy mission at the end of the day it's a competitive marketplace we can talk all we like about how unjust it is that we're not unjust it's how wrong it is that you've had people the, the way to change it is to is to be part of the solution and we were like and it's part of the pressure of it is and feeling that I do feel a weight of it sometimes of um, we've got to go out and part of our strategy to we, we have to go and execute with excellence because success breeds more success it means it's more people we can hire it's more jobs we can create it's more stories we can amplify mm. and so I think part of that is just doing the work and we are really focused on like we can talk all we want you have to do the work we have to do it with a level of intentional a level of excellence like I cannot tell you the caliber of the 60 people that work in this company it is insane how exciting you know my the biggest job of a, a CEO and and with the founder Reese is the condition setting to bring people in to do the best work of their lives, but not just bring in people who have always been A pluses, right? You bring in people who are early in their careers and you help create the conditions where they really can to find to can find their power. And look, I think the learning and unlearning, you know, I have you know, I am very mindful. I am I've I've grown up in an enormous privilege. You know, while I'm a woman, I'm a white woman incredible education I see it's a privilege to grow up in the a small town in Australia with an amazing family and you know I think if anything has shown me over the last 10 or 15 years I've certainly been subject to biases and um I I mean I look (laughs) we've been working you know in male-dominated environments and often the only woman in the room like there has been that but I think if the, the eye-opening and the self-education um, that I think is incumbent on all of us, um, but particularly, you know, we want to be part of, like, positive change in this country is just unlearning the systemic, you know, the systemic practices, the systemic racism that is, is you know, we have lived in and been part of and and that's the unlearning it is acknowledging that no matter what good intentions we have we've we've grown up in a systemically racist culture Mm. and systemically biased structural institutions that um have located power in favor of certain groups and um and i think if you want to be part of uh you know being part of um of moving towards a sort of more just and equitable world that truly includes everyone you've we we have to be prepared to interrogate those power systems including the ones that have benefited us (laughs) along the way yeah sarah you talk about creating an environment for your team to find their power how did you find your power you know what what role models did you see um or did you well so many i you know, it's it's interesting. I don't. I'm still so much on the journey. I feel like like it's funny. I always sometimes when I have to, you know, I, you know, you know me well enough to know. I do find it a little bit excruciating to talk about myself. Um, you know, I really, uh, I do feel. You know, as I grew up, I grew up. Um, my my mom was incredibly formative. My family were incredibly formative for me, and. You know, I looked at the, I looked at my mom as she raised my brothers and I, and, you know, she's an incredibly bright woman and, um, you know, seven or six siblings. Um, she became a nurse because that was sort of what she did in her town. You sort of became a nurse or a teacher if, you know, or you got married. She was brilliantly smart. She later in life, like, um, switched and, she had a terrible, incredible curiosity, but she, and, you know, she died when she was 46 years old. Um, and 
like I really, I, I feel I had an incredible example in her of just like her get up and go and hustle. And, you know, I think a very humbling experience of, um, you know, I think she did all of those things and was also an incredibly attentive mother. So she's been a real role model. You know, I, I do feel, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big one for quotes. So I have another quote next to my desk. Uh, which was the Dean of Harvard Business School and Graduation said, which was no success in business will ever make up for a failure at home. And, you know, and I really think about that a lot as well. Like, am I being, you know, am I being a good mom? What's this, what's this all for? So, you know, people I admire, look, I certainly, there's, there's women like Michelle Obama, who I, I really like, she is someone that I have such a deep admiration for, I think. Um, if you haven't read her book, Becoming, you should. And, um, uh, you know, I really, when I think of her grace, I think of her strength of voice and, um, and her quiet work that she has done. And, um, you know, I think there's people, I, I deeply admire Reese. I, I mean, I think the joy of getting to work with someone that you so deeply respect um, as a creative thinker, um, as a parent, like she's, she juggles a lot as well. Um, and I look at it and I see how she does that. Um, and she, she gives me a lot of courage. Um, you know, there's times where you are like, ah, oh, she's just, she's, she, you know, she really encouraging me to really listen to my own convictions about things. And, you know, knowing I'm working with someone that always really has my back. Um, and so, but I, I look for sources of inspiration in, in, in many places. I, I will say that in the last five years, the, the really humbling experience of the bravery of the women who came forward in the, in the Me Too and Time's Up movement, yeah. like they've shifted work culture. And then I think the bravery and the courage of activists, um, you know, I think uh, through Black Lives Matter or through, through the voting rights reforms and um you look at Stacey Abrams who's also by the way an incredible author <laughs> she writes romance novels if you haven't read them no, like, she's she's got a new book coming out actually I think in May or June but you know and and when you look at the on the ground voting rights reform in Georgia and what has the, that has meant for the shift in mm. America like uh, you just it's it's awe-inspiring and deeply inspiring. And, you know, and I, and I think what the thing that inspires me about that so much is this is bravery when you have a lot to lose mm. um, and there is a lot to gain, but the gains are so systemic and not immediate and um, putting themselves often in physical risk, like the, the toxic nature of social and media and others, it is just, I, I, I have so much admiration. So I, I get a lot of inspiration from, um, you know, women and men, but, you know, many women that I see around me every day. I love how, um, you know, and I think you've always been so um, humble and open and wanting to learn and, and curious mm -hmm. and interested in other people. Um, and it just, you know, it just absolutely shines out of you. Um, and I've got no doubt there'd be so many people I could speak to who'd, who I'd ask the same question around a role model and who they admire and your name would be right up there on the list. <laughs> you started to, um, I knew you'd really love that. Um, you know, you... Um, you started to go there a little bit, but I am asking everyone to just think about, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like? I know you've started to answer this, but really what does it look like today and does it need to change? You know, there is a... Um, there's something about standing in our own shoes fully that feels really strong to me you know I think it is uh I think there is a resoluteness and a strength um of women standing shoulder to shoulder mm -hmm. so I, I don't see I, I don't see brave feminine leadership I certainly see it expressed individually but the most powerful 
the thing that I see is um, cohorts and collaborators and groups of women who are just standing so firmly in their own shoes and standing shoulder to shoulder with other women and saying, this is it. We, this is, and it's not talking anymore about what we don't want and what the problems are. It is just being clear and saying, we're standing here. This is what it looks like. Follow us. Mm. We got it. Like we got it. And no asking for permission, not begging for a seat or the crumbs or the one spot. Fuck that. Like, yeah. sorry. Oh, <laughs> I couldn't. I nearly got to the end. But it's just like we have what we need. We have what we need. Get out of our way mm. or join. Um, I, I also think it is a very, um, there's something around the inclusiveness and the collaborative way um, that I see women leading um, that doesn't just feel good, but it actually creates more powerful leadership because you can bring whole groups of people, whole organizations, whole populaces, whole voting blocks um, with you. And I think that's, that's deeply transformative, I think, for companies, for communities, um, I, um, I have loved our conversation and I love what you guys are doing and I love that, um, you know, the company that you guys are building together, um, not only am I absolutely confident it will be, you know, a commercial success, I think even far more importantly with the stories that you guys are telling and sharing, you know, I, I just wonder, um, you know, one day into the future it's, because I don't think we ever questioned the movies we watched before or the stories yeah. we saw before. We never questioned them. They just kind of were there and they formed the background yeah. we operated in. And I just think how amazing that you guys are creating something so lasting, so tangible that people are going to, to just be able to absorb into kind of every pore in their body um, and, and the incredible messages that are in there. And there are a lot of messages in there about women standing shoulder to shoulder like you're talking about as well. So, oh, thank you. Sarah, thank you. Always a pleasure. Um, it didn't matter that the swearing came out late. I invited you early on. So, <laughs> you restrained oh, well, my friend. My friend, we have known each other since we were 14 years old. We have, and it's such a joy to talk to you. I really, um, I really appreciate it. So, thank you. Loved it. You too. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.